Hi, I'm Bob Switzer, and this is the Epic Narrative. <laughs> hey, so I wanted to, uh, yeah, so David's just in this great spot, right? But I wanted to, what I wanted to say was, you you had to have heard the engineer in my head just when we started the story and I literally probably spent 15 minutes on not even the full first verse of chapter 18. He just was like, he, you got, we will never get through this chapter. Anyways, he cracks me up uh, that when he's in my, in my head yelling at me like that. Anyways, he doesn't yell. It just is like, sometimes it, he just, he just gets as confused as I do, but there was a lot there, and I, I I love drawing that kind of stuff out, as you guys can tell already, because we skip over it so easily when we read the scriptures. When even you know even in our quote Bible reading, like if if you just if you're just reading through the Bible, we don't we don't layer the relational and conversational activities that happen within the verse. But a Jewish uh, rabbi would. Because the they when when they wrote the Bible and as they interacted with with Scripture, to them it was an outline of a story. The whole thing is a narrative, and it's a beautiful layered conversation that's designed for interaction. It's designed for people to uh, to gain understanding about life and about relationship through a story that they can continually go back to and and interact with. And it's designed, again, to be facilitated by somebody who is, you know, who has spent time doing just that so that so that things can be learned and and insights and revelation, uh, revelation uh, can be found. It's I, I, I just love the stories. I really do. But I was laughing because because of. It's just funny how I how how sometimes one verse can go for 15, 20 minutes, easy, and sometimes even longer, as I'm sure we'll find out as we continue the story. But I, it reminded me of the fact that I love I love doing high, uh, school chapels, um, college, high school, middle school, grade school. Like I just I I love doing chapels. I went to a a Christian school when I was in high school, and so chapels were. I forget the. I don't think they were daily. We had Bible classes daily, but I think chapels were twice a week. So there's there's something about going to chapel that for me just I I just like to be that guest speaker. I like to I like to do it. So you know, anyways, there's there's a Christian school in my area that has me come in. Uh, I volunteer literally. I, I'd go every week just because I have so much fun. Because it's it's a it's a fun group to be a part of. Because the age range is insane. It it's like K kindergarten through I think through sixth grade is in the chapel. So as a speaker, you 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 know you're looking at an audience with a with a comprehension range that's insane to try and give something to everybody. And as a storyteller, when I see a, an age range that much, I think, well, you know, as, as I know stories can be relatable regardless. So the, to me, I'm like, I'm fine. I really am fine. But it's funny because 
because they, I always get a letter from them, uh, you know, the week prior. Here's your, here's your chapel day. Just remember, chapel starts promptly at 8:45 and ends at 9:15. Uh, there'll be a few announcements and a, and a couple, you know, a couple songs, and you'll be, you know, you, you'll have the microphone. Basically, you'll have 20 minutes. And I've done multiple chapels there because I volunteer to do it every week. They don't, they don't let me come every week. Maybe that should be a. Maybe that should be assigned to me. <laughs> Wait a minute. Maybe they're trying to tell me something. They they let me come usually twice twice a semester. They have two semesters. But once in a while, like I I'll get I'll get two times each semester, and that's like four four or five times a year I'll get in. Like that's that to me is so much fun. But bottom line is I get the letter, and they always tell me I have twenty minutes and then I I don't think I've ever had more than I think the longest time I had was 12 minutes. And the shortest time I had was <clears throat> I think it was six. But it's usually right around I usually have eight to ten minutes because it just, you know, teachers want to they want to do stuff. I get it. Like all the kids are there. So they want to congratulate people. They want to recognize certain teachers. They want to sing happy birthday. There's always more than just a few announcements. I just always laugh at the, at the letter because I know I'm not going to have 20 minutes and it makes me chuckle because I think I really can, I really can tell a story in just a few minutes. It's just, it's just not the complete story in my mind, but it's fun. I really, really have fun. So yeah, anytime. I'll I'll literally I'll te- I'll go anywhere. I'll speak anywhere. I'll I'll I've done it online. I've done it. You know, I've sent recordings to people uh, who wanted to sh- you know show show it to the class, so to speak. Not so to speak. What what is that a fr- why is that a phrase, Bob? So to speak. Well, they they are showing it to the class. Like not even. Well, I don't even. I don't even know why you're running down this path. We have a story to tell. And it's a good one. So David's in this place of amazing acceptance and and uh, confirmation of 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 who he is, right? He's a he's a and 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 I just I I I really can't imagine. And he's in this place of of honor, and he's in this place of authority, and he's in this place of of national recognition uh, within the within the armed forces. And I uh, I know we we. Talk last week. Uh, I don't even know if it's last week. Why do you keep saying last week? I don't even know when. I don't know when the story goes out. Uh, so last time we got together, uh, we talked about his family and the the. I believe they just they had a lot of fear about ramifications and and um, negative impact from David now that he's in this place of authority because he's he's you know. He's in a place where he can really make their life rough. And I I just think that a lot of them lived in fear of David. But um, the longer he went without retaliation, given, given uh, information, you know, uh, details in the future, where some of his brothers actually join his cabinet when he becomes ca- uh, king, I think that, that there are some of his brothers who start to recognize Hey, he's not that. Maybe he's not that bad. But I don't think that starts yet. I think that starts later. Um, probably. I don't even know how many 
how many episodes down the road it'll be. But uh, anyways, so they're they're back at home. David's in the palace. He's I'm sure getting used to things. He's getting his own um, his own apartment, which is usually what it was when you got housing uh, at the palace. You would get an apartment. It's it's not like a it, it, you know they wouldn't necessarily build you a house out on the hillside. So he probably got his own apartment and he's getting it, you know, furnished and um, they're they're You know, he's he now has servants that are treating him like like a prince because that's what he's been. That's what he's been identified as. He's got he's got the robe. He's got the tunic. He's got the belt. He's got the sword. He's got the bow of Jonathan. Uh, he's got the covenant with the king. I mean, with Jonathan, he's got the agreement with the king. So they're treating him like a prince, and I'm sure that transition had to be difficult because David's thinking, I know what it's like to be a servant. Like, I've grown, I, I know what it's like. But as servants, they know that David used to be a servant, right? They know he used to be a shepherd. That's part of the whole legend of who he is. And the servants, they talk. They know the history of people. So they're, they are so encouraged. Every time they see David, they see hope. They see, they see the path of God. They see the favor of God. They see this amazing opportunity that all of them have. All of them have. They look at it and say, see, God can do this. We can, we can someday be favored. We can someday find favor. We can someday find promotion and find authority. And, and it's not that they all plan on being princes in the palace. It's that it happened. It's that it happened. And I know that this mentality is really, um, really powerful. I've talked to and been friends with, I guess technically I still am friends, with a number of what I would call inner city slash urban ministries, ministries and pastors, reverends, bishops, archbishops. They got titles out the wazoo. It doesn't, that, that part I'm not worried about. But many of them, many of them insist on buying a really nice car. Even if even if they're barely getting anything from the church and they're all working two or three jobs, they drive a really nice car. And I, I finally got friends enough with one of them. Uh, and I asked, I was like, you know, I like, like help me understand that part. Like you're, you're, you're here, you're in this very um, oppressed, financially oppressed area. I mean, his people were super happy and, and joyful and fun to worship with for sure. I love, I love gospel um, music and I love the the praise worship. Um, I'm not I'm not really big on reflectional worship, but that's just me. Uh, it doesn't matter the the genre of worship. I just when it gets slow, I can usually go a song. But man, I like I like the I like percussions. I like dance. I like jumping. I like I like to be done with worship, you know, two hours later and be like completely exhausted, sweaty, uh, you know, having pulled a hamstring from from running and jumping so much. So that's just me. So I don't know why. why do, I know. I know. I know. I'm telling a story. OK, so anyways, they, they buy, you know, he, he had a really nice car and I was like, what you know, what's the purpose of that? And he goes, it's Bob, it's for the people when I drive down the street. They see it as a symbol, like they take care of their pastor, they love their pastor, and someday they believe God will, you know, it, it gives them hope. God's going to show up for them, and they're all going to get nice cars. 
So it's a symbol of hope, and I believe David represented that to the servants of the nation, of the nation, because Bethlehem, those Bethlehem servants, they knew the shepherds that many shepherds would wander the countryside with their with their flocks, not just stay in the area. I think David stayed in the area of Bethlehem, like within a five, 10 mile range, but many would travel even more than that to find good good grounds, good feeding grounds and that sort of thing. So the word spread, the word spread, a servant of Jesse's house, a son of Jesse, who is treated as a servant, like the whole, the whole oppression, rejection, um, lack of, lack of support has shifted, has changed. David is now a prince, a prince in Israel. This is, this is huge. And then you have this underlying, this underlying story that he was also anointed the next king of Israel by Samuel. Like that story hasn't left Bethlehem either. That hasn't been lost on, on the, especially the, the elders of Bethlehem who were all there observing David getting anointed. And now they look and David's in the palace and they're asking questions. Right when Jesse treated him just like a servant and sent him back out to work, when when David would go and play in the palace, and then when he came home, he was sent back out to the fields. There was there was just like, well, you know, he got anointed. Eh, maybe Samuel got it wrong. It's not a big deal. Like you know, you're allowed to get things wrong. But now David's in the palace. Now David's anointed a prince in Israel. And this is this is not lost on the elders in Bethlehem. And although they might not bring it up to Jesse, who probably doesn't want to talk about it, he might he might be getting to be proud. I don't think so. Again, given the details of the of the rest of the story, I think Jesse was 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 pretty steadfast that that he was right and God was wrong on this. So I picture elders having conversations like, you know, if, you know, who would have thought if David ever becomes king, like, I don't know if we want to be the ones that were against him. We need to be careful. Like, we need to keep this in mind. Because they would just talk about things, right? Elders would just talk. They'd sit, when they felt like it, they would sit at the city gates. They would talk to people, trade people, merchants, uh, real estate people. I don't know what they called them back then, but that's in essence what they were. Farmers, there was talk. There was talk. And David was now in the palace. This had to be amazing. And then it says, when the men, haha, we're back to the story. In verse 6 of chapter 18, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and the timbrels and lairs. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, David has his his tens of thousands. Okay, so this is, I, I know if you're familiar with, with the story, most people know this because this, this is like this turning point. Bum, bum, bum. Saul hears the words of this song when he's, when he's, you know, sitting at home and he's like, wait a minute, what song is that? Oh, David is a bad man. Bad man, David. Listen, let's let's slow down a little bit. 
Men are returning home after David killed the Philistine. The women came out of all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul. You know what this is? This is a parade. This is a victory tour. So the a lot of the men have taken their spoils and gone home. There's probably, a, you know, I don't know, five, ten thousand of them that were that were part of this parade, and they would march, so to speak. They would walk through a tour of villages and cities to celebrate this huge victory. This was huge. And although they, you know, the Philistines weren't necessary, you know, they weren't volunteering to be the the servants of Israel, even though that was the agreement. As I said before, that was that was more high, you know, hyperbole and and um, intimidation talk. It wasn't it wasn't it wasn't realistic. It wasn't realistic activity, and it was up to Israel to enforce it. If they were going to, it was it was it was up to them. So, anyways. People, this victory tour, this was big. This was big, and and they they come out. The women come out. They already know that there's been a victory. This probably was three weeks later, maybe two weeks later. David's been, you know, in, uh, exalted into the position of prince. He's he's there with the troops. He's the hero of the of the story. Everybody knows this, and in an effort to exalt the hero. They give him bigger numbers. Now, did David kill 10,000 10, people? No. This was only a few weeks ago. He killed one, basically. But he sent tens of thousands of, of Philistines to flight. He sent tens of thousands of them to their death because of his killing of Goliath. Everybody started to run. And you remember that they pursued the Philistines for a day. They just kept chasing them down and and fighting them and killing them. And it was a huge victory. It was a huge victory. And they're singing and they're dancing and there's music and there's, there's you know, it, it had to be fun. This was a parade. And Saul would walk into the village, probably ride it, sorry, ride into the village, probably on a donkey that his father had bred and it was decorated, and, and he looked amazing. He was a good-looking king. Remember that. He was a good-looking man. He was tall and handsome, and everybody's happy to see him. And he probably, I know in Rome, they usually the, the victor usually came in uh, in the front. There was other cultures that would have the victor come in at the, at the end. You know, in front of them was all of the all of the captured people and the and the troops. So I don't know which direction this went, but this was a victory tour. And everybody was happy and they danced and they sang and there was probably food and and Saul is, you know, he's waving and smiling and everybody loves him. And then the song starts. I don't know where it started, I don't know what village started it, but it was a way to honor David as somebody who was amazing. And what he did was amazing. They didn't do it to dishonor Saul. They gave Saul thousands. Saul had already won a number of victories against the Philistines. He had recaptured garrisons and and freed the land of raiders uh, from the Philistines. He had he had protected their their crops and their and their livestock. He was a good king. He wasn't an idiot out on the out on the battlefield. So when they gave David more honor, see this is where this is where self rejection comes back in. I 
I believe, you know, when, when you don't know who you are, when you aren't settled in who you are, and there's somebody who you are friends with, who you love, who you think, wow, I could be like that, or I think I am like them, and then they start getting exalted above you. They start getting more money than you. They start, you know, they've, they've stepped into something that you've done, but now they're doing it better. And they're they're more popular, more you know they get invited to the to the boardroom. They get invited into the emails. They get copied on on suggestions. They their their wisdom is desired. Like it's really easy to to see things like that and be like, wait, what's wrong with me? I I you know wait a minute wait I've been here longer, and especially in the case of Saul, right? I'm the king. What do you mean he's killed 10,000? I know I know he did a great thing. No one's denying that. I, I'm the one who promoted him. I'm the one who gave him a position. He's he's in covenant with my son. He, I mean, we gave him a robe and the sword and the I mean, like this is this is a big deal. I I did that. Like I why am I not getting credit for being an amazing leader and and exalting this kid? He I could have just sent him home. His father would have made him go back out into the fields. I'm the one who exalted him. And people are like, yes, and he's amazing, even better than you, basically, is the way that Saul is understanding this song. He's Listen, when, when you believe yourself to be rejected, when you believe yourself to be a disappointment, when you believe yourself to be uh, in constantly in danger of being replaced, which I... Given Saul's reaction, that's what I. That's why I I project that back into his childhood. I think his father often, you know, gave him this these concepts of of uh, being replaced or you know being dismissed, being rejected if he didn't behave, if he didn't come through, if his if as as he took on the business aspect of things, like if the if he didn't get good prices for the for the donkeys, if he didn't. I mean, it just—I I just see all of this crashing in on Saul. So there he is, riding, riding the donkey as the king of Israel, and he's hearing the song. And I—the uh, the way that it's written, it seems as though this song became a theme song. It became something that began to—not that it was played a hundred percent of the time, all while they were, you know, all uh, in every village. But eventually, somebody would start this phrase, and they would—it probably was more like a chant to a rhythm of some sort and Saul was angry. <laughs> yeah. He was angry. He was very displeased. I'm sure at first he might have even smiled because he thought, well, as a politician, I, you know, I can't uh I can't I can't look angry because that would displease the people even more. That would mean that I'm the bad guy. But it displeased him. This was really internal. This was hard for him to hear because he's the one who, in essence, quote, found David. He's the one who, from his perspective, he gave the incentive for David to step forward and be brave. Remember that, okay? That what he was trying to do as king for 40 days was find the proper motivation because in a culture of fear, you have to motivate through external sources and rewards because fear creates selfishness. And so you create a, an environment where the selfishness in somebody 
gets to a point where they're like, okay, I'll do what you want me to do. And that's what Saul believed his plan worked. His plan worked and David stepped forward. So he believes he deserves all the credit for the tens of thousands of, of Philistines that were killed uh, in that in that battle and for Goliath being killed. He has no problem with, with David being recognized as the hero in that particular battle, but Saul believes himself to be the one who should be exalted for finding David, for, for bringing favor on David, for releasing his family from taxes, and for, I mean, he knows eventually, I've got to make David my son-in-law. This is, this is a big deal. The, disple- the, the, displeasing, the displeasure of, of Saul goes deep. And when you live in a place of self-rejection, you're reticulating factors. There's a name for that internally. But you find evidence over and over and over again, right? All day, you'll find evidence of rejection. You'll find evidence where you've been a disappointment. And it's it's difficult to make decisions because you don't want to disappoint people. You're afraid of what they might think of you. You're afraid of 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 all kinds of negative reactions to just about everything you do. And and so here he is riding his donkey on a victory tour, and he feels rejected, and it's his fault. Do you understand that? Not only does he believe he deserves credit for finding David and for exalting David and, and bringing him into the palace and giving him a, a position of authority, but he also feels like he's a disappointment. Because he made the wrong decision. He shouldn't have exalted David. He shouldn't have made him a prince. He shouldn't have allowed Jonathan to be in covenant with him. He should have sent David home to be a shepherd boy again. Because then all the credit would belong to him, which is where it needs to be. So he's, I mean, literally, when, when, you're, when you're in a cult, uh, um, not a culture, when you have created an atmosphere of self-rejection, you can't, it seems as though you can't get out. It takes a lot of work. The longer you've been in it, the more work it seems to take. But it's possible. But I believe Saul is in this turmoil, internal turmoil. And he doesn't know how to get out because because if he now fires David, right, then he's then he's the worst, you know, the worst king ever. So it's uh it's difficult. It says they credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more? Can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. What more could he get but the kingdom? He is so spiraling into self-rejection that he sees himself literally being removed as king by the people and David being exalted. He he figures David has the, the voice or the, the hearts of the people. He has the hearts of the troops. And all it's going to take is one day David's going to decide, hey, I'm going to be king. And boom, Saul's going to be removed. It's, it's, a, it's a nervous place to be. When you live in a culture of fear, this little political uh, up, uprisal, this military coup, coup possibility looms always in your head. But now he looks around and he thinks, wait a minute. I literally brought this man into my house. He could be the one who pulls the entire nation away from me. 
He comes from a different tribe. He's not family. I mean, he's family because he's part of the you know 12 tribes of Israel, but he's not from the tribe of Benjamin. I've surrounded myself with people from the family because they're loyal. And I know they won't they, I know they won't attack me mostly. They might, but odds are they won't. David comes from a different family, and now I've brought him into the palace. Like that kind of uh, that kind of internal negativity had to constantly be churning in Saul's mind, constantly rolling around in his in his head. Maybe not uh, you know, the volume of it, I should say that. The volume of that of that possibility came in different, you know, came at different times. Like sometimes it was really loud and sometimes it seemed like just this really quiet subroutine that was running in the back of his computer because he had things to do every day. He had he had people to talk to. He had decisions to make and and he still had to run the country and he did. And David just seemed to be like this incredibly young, good-looking, uh, powerful, charismatic, everybody loves type of guy. And dang it, he's always around. Always reminding me that I might have made, always reminding me that I may have made the wrong choice. And actually, I did make the wrong choice because now I'm in trouble. So he kept a close eye on David. So then it, we have this phrasing, right? That in in the in the Bible, verse ten, it says, "The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcibly on Saul." He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lair, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Now, this 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 is a great story. The next day, I don't know what day that means. That's The, the, the concept here is, there is there is something that occurs it seems suddenly because because we we have this victory tour so it's we know it's not the next day after he's he's made a prince in Israel so that's been going on probably for a couple of weeks then everybody's dismissed david's running you know in the palace kind of figuring out life as a prince in Israel Saul is keeping a close eye on him, wants to know what he did every day. He probably has some some loyal servants from his family. And he's like, I want you, like, I'm going to assign you to David. And, of course, it looks like he's honoring David by giving him one of his own personal servants. But really what he's doing is he's, he's putting a spy on David. I want to know what this guy does all day, every day. And so the next day just means that there's a sudden a suddenly to it. And so the, the suddenly thing happens when? When he was prophesying in his house while David was playing, as he usually did. So when Saul would be in the in the state of worship, when David was playing and Saul was in the state of worship, there was an opportunity for, for Saul to be relieved of his insecurity, to be relieved of this internal turmoil of overthinking, which... Man, that is just like I said. That is a that is a spiral that will that gets you. That gets you. It it allowed him to get above his circumstances, and he would prophesy. What does prophesy mean? And I, again, I know theologically this this could be a little a little like not everybody uh, is there, so to speak, theologically. But 
to prophesy means to speak God's perspective. That's the way, that's my inter, my translation of it, okay? If you're going to prophesy to somebody, you're going to speak God's perspective. And what does God sound like? Well, God sounds like hope. God sounds like love. God sounds like encouragement. God sounds like a God of possibilities. So he's speaking hope and life and love and possibilities and and a, and and he gets a perspective that isn't fear-based when he's in worship, when he's in that place of worship. And David sees this. It says that that um, you know, it says as he usually did. This is this is a usual thing. So David did this often, which again speaks to a a, a long period of time. David's been at this for a long period of time before when he was when he was uh when he was playing for Saul he would come and go when they would see Saul kind of spinning into into a depression they would call David back from Bethlehem he would come and play maybe for a day maybe just for a few hours maybe you know just to give Saul some relief now David's in the palace so at this point he's kind of like a personal musician and worship leader for Saul and Saul knows that when he's in this place with David you know slash when he's when he's connecting to heaven it's a relief it gives him creative wisdom for for all the problems that he needs to solve this is you know God again the voice of God is a is a place is a place of wisdom God speaks wisdom and he gives wisdom freely to anybody who will ask so i have no doubt that he was probably doing something on a daily or maybe Several days a week, he would set up a worship set, so to speak, with David. And he would say, you know what, Dave, let's get together in the morning and and you'll play for me. And David would prepare a, a, a set. He might even write some, you know, some some song that evening or the or in the morning, if whatever. He'd write some songs, they'd get together. Maybe David, maybe Saul was a night guy. Maybe he liked to, you know, worship at night. There's it's fine, it's not illegal. I know that I know when I was I say illegal because I remember um, I was I was part of a really when, when I first started in my in my Christian walk, I was part of a an, a group of people that were highly what I would call legalistic. There was there was there was what they believe there was right ways to do things. And the right way to worship God was to get up early in the morning. That was that was the right way. The first thing you do, first thing you do is you worship God. And the last thing you do at night is, you know, is worship God. And if you don't, like, you're putting your life in jeopardy. And that's and that's a short version of the way that they would kind of control your behavior. And I don't believe they did it maliciously like they wanted they wanted to. They I believe they honestly believed deep down they were doing what they believed scripture told them to do. And maybe they're right. I don't think they are anymore, but that's the culture I grew up in. So I understand. But, you know, maybe Saul was a morning guy. Maybe he was an evening guy. I don't know. But this was a regular connection between David and himself. Well, this suddenly happens. Okay, something snaps. What would snap? Well, he goes from a place of prophesying. And man, I'll tell you. Can I just say those are those are though when you're connected to heaven, I don't care if you believe in prophesying or not, there are times where you really connect to heaven. It is a glorious place to be. And what you're not aware of when you're in those places is you're not aware of access points that you've given 
to the enemy. You're not aware of them. You don't see them coming. And often the enemy will blindside you with some lie about your identity, some lie about about who God's made you to be. And often it's because while you're worshiping, you look around and you see someone and and boom, like the your your hang up about that person becomes an access point for the enemy to to shift what's going on cuz the enemy knows when you're in God's presence all this amazing positive stuff is happening and when when he sees an op- when he knows his opportunities trust me the enemy knows his access points he sees an access point to Saul through this rejection through this fear so David uh, you know Saul's having this amazing experience with heaven prophesying speaking hope speaking life speaking whatever and he's singing and he's just listening and I believe he kind of turns and he looks at David and everything he wants to be is contained in that man. He sees that man and he says, I could I could be like that. I I, I and then he's like, I wish I could be like that. And then it shifts to Oh, there's there's no way I can be like that. Everybody loves him because he doesn't have to do what I do. He doesn't know what I have to go through. He seems so secure. He seems like like everything's great. Well, everything he has is because of me. He'd be out watching sheep if it wasn't for me. I'm the reason why he looks so happy. I'm the reason. Wait a minute. He's my problem. If he just if I just get rid of him, then he's he's done. Because, you know what, his life belongs to me. Because I've given him everything he is. His father doesn't love him. His father has rejected him his whole life. His father still doesn't want to talk to him. I mean, what, whatever's swirling around in, in Saul's life, like the enemy, this is, this, is what's, this is what you have to remember about the enemy. He is not satisfied until you're dead. Right? Sin brings death the enemy's goal is always for you to die he does not care the ramifications of your death he just wants everyone to die so he sees an opportunity in Saul's life and he takes it to the max and Saul begins to spiral in this um, from this amazing moment of of worship he spirals into this place this depth of not just depression but he goes right into fear, and from fear he becomes motivated to take out what he believes would be the only thing that stands between him and the and the what he sees in David. I don't, I mean, did that make sense? Like what he sees in David, he knows should be his: the life, the love, the adoration of people. All of that he believes is belongs to him, Saul, and David has stolen it. David is a thief. David is uh, is a moocher. Moocher? Where do I don't know where that word came from. David David is a yeah, he's a moocher. He's a leech. That's a better word. He's a leech who's just sucking me dry. He's he's taking the very blood, my very blood. He's taking Jonathan from me. He takes my my other sons from me. He's he's a horrible person. And in that moment 
Saul takes his spear. I, as I've said before, the spear shows up pretty much through this whole story with Saul. I believe Saul never went anywhere without a spear. I believe it was part of the way that, as a ruler, he ruled with intimidation because he didn't know how to rule from love. He had never seen what it was like to rule from love. The only time he felt truly loved was when he was in the presence of God, and he has now shifted from a, the presence of God to the presence of, of himself, to the presence of the enemy. He has, he has disconnected himself from his awareness of God's presence. Now, I know that the beginning of this, of this verse, in verse 10, it says, the evil spirit came from God. I do not believe that. But I do understand why it would be written that way. As I've said before in this story, I think that those who wrote the Bible had two options. You either give God credit for everything or the enemy works for God. And although God didn't do it, it came from him. Either way, God has to get credit for the evil because in their minds, in their paradigm, while they're writing this, if they don't give God credit for the evil, then they're taking glory from God. So I don't think an evil spirit comes from God. I don't think God has evil spirits in heaven to give. That's why I don't think it comes from him. I don't think there's evil spirits in heaven where God's like, okay, give me one of those evil spirits. I need to send it, I need to send it down. Or, or, you know, he has one of those backdoor meetings with the, with the bad guy. He opens up, uh, you know, the side door where all the darkness is and he, and he says, hey, Send send an evil you know this is where here's a here's a piece of paper send this send an evil spirit down to this guy and then you know then I'll send my angel down to get rid of it like it's it just it's just ridiculous but it's only ridiculous if you think about it uh, from the perspective of Jesus Jesus did not act this way Jesus did not do this uh, and therefore God doesn't either and Jesus is the picture of of heaven so so. I don't think the evil spirit came from God. I think he's uh I think the evil spirit came from the enemy. I think he had access to Saul through fear, self-rejection, depression, disappointment, frustration, anger. He had all kinds of access points and he found one that worked and he took it to the max and from that position Saul believed the best way, the best answer to his problems was death. Not for himself, but for the one he believed was the source of his problems. He blamed God for for being with David. He blamed God for not being nice to him and not giving him uh, ad the adoration of the people. And he chooses to try and kill David. And it says that he, he'll try and pin him to the wall. That speaks, in the, in the Hebrew, that speaks to the to the passion with which he was going to throw this spear. He was not throwing it to intimidate he was throwing literally to pin David to the wall. He wanted the spear. He was going to throw hard enough to put the spear through David and into the wall so that David could not get away. Because given given the uh, a spear, like it's it's not something that usually you die from right away. It's usually, I mean, it's an injury, but theoretically you could crawl away. So Saul chucks this thing. And it hits the wall. And then it says, you know, but David eluded him twice. So maybe the first one didn't hit the wall. Maybe it hit a chair and deflected off. 
and maybe David's looking at it. Maybe, you know, they're in the middle of a song. Maybe David's eyes were closed, and he just hears this thump, this bang, this rattle, and he looks around, and there's a spear on the ground, and he kind of looks at Saul, and Saul, I think, partially embarrassed, continuing to feel like a failure. Maybe he just, you know, smiles. <laughs> yeah, hey, dear. Or maybe he says, oh, sorry. Sorry about that. And then he walks over. You know, keep playing, Dave. Keep playing. That'll be fine. Just keep playing. Mm, that's a good song. Yeah. And he goes over and he picks up the spear again. Now, I don't know why he couldn't have walked up to David and just stabbed him. Like that part of the story, I'm, I'm not sure. Like, I don't I don't know if the musicians sort of uh, sat in a different location. Maybe, maybe... Not in a well, maybe like a balcony type of thing. Uh, maybe they were in some sort of, of, um, for lack of a better term, call it a chapel. Uh, maybe it was a a bedroom, a large you know bedroom where where Saul sat, and therefore David didn't go into the royal bedroom, but he sat off to the side in a side room. I don't know. I don't know why Saul couldn't have just gone to stab him, or maybe it was just. You know, when you live in a in a place of fear, when you live in a place of of oppression, sometimes sometimes reason isn't there, logic doesn't work, and maybe he wanted to throw a spear at David because because of the way it would make him feel uh, as a success. It would make him maybe it would make him be able to sit back and say, "Well, it wasn't all me. Like I threw it, but God directed its path." Like that's another. I I know you you know you hear that and you think, well, nobody would ever think that way. Oh yes, we do. We think this way all the time, right? When we're speeding down the highway and we say, well, I if I get caught, then I get caught. But if I don't, then God protected me. Well, I, you know what? <laughs> I don't think that's the way it works. I remember this one time, like there was a, you know there was a there was a I worked for an organization. They had like they had built they had a large piece of property. Uh, it was down in Florida. They built an illegal shed, you know, in the back part of the of the thing. They had a big pit back there that they would bury, you know, refrigerators and and engines, things that should have been taken to the dump or they had to pay, but they didn't want to pay, so they just you know dig a big hole and dump it back there. And I remember that there was a fire back there that occurred for some reason, right? But they didn't want to call the they didn't want to call the fire department because then they would come back there and they'd see the illegal shed and they'd ask about the pit with the with all the illegal uh, dumping that was occurring. So they, you know, they put the fire out. It was it was pretty pretty hectic, like scary hectic. Like this, you know, this could get the the dried grass on fire. This could get the pump. Like this could turn into a big freaking deal. We got to get this out. Like, and they worked hard, and they got it all out, right? And then later that night, they, you know, they literally are thanking God for protecting them from being noticed for all the illegal activity. Like, I don't think God was. <laughs> I I don't think that's the way it works. <laughs> I don't think that's the way it works. I do think, you know, clearly their hard work. Uh, and the energy and the life that God gives them and the breath that God gives them, they used to cover their tracks and it worked. That's fine. You can thank God for the life, but I don't think you can sit back and say, well, you know, it was up to God and God gave us all this power and this strength and the water necessary. So therefore we're no longer 
Like this was blessed of the illegal activity was blessed of God. I don't think you can do that, but I can kind of I do understand the logic of it. And we think the same way. I think Saul was along the same ways. He's like, hey, if I throw this and it hits David, then, uh, you know, that's God's will. And trust me, there are plenty of examples, especially in this culture and in the Middle Eastern culture and and not just in belief of Yahweh, but in many other uh, religious, you know, religions, this idea of, of, quote, you know, God's will. Well, it must be God's will, I you know. I sh- I threw the spear at him, but it hit him. So God directed it. It's not my fault. It's it's trust me. It was an easy. It, that's an easy uh, leap to make when you're when you're in this state of mind. It really really is. So he chucks the spear. He wants to pin him to the wall, but David eluded him twice. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. I guess by the second time, maybe David's eyes were open. Or maybe maybe after he missed him the second time, using the same logic that he was thinking, if I hit him, it's God's will. He throws it twice and misses David, and he probably thinks, great, now even God doesn't want me to kill him. Honestly, given what he does next, I believe that was his logic, and I'll, I'll, I'll walk you through that. His logic was, if I hit him, it's God's will. Well, he missed him twice. So now he has to say to himself, okay, it isn't God's will. Now now I can't kill uh, David. Now what do I do? And we'll, we'll hit that uh, next because uh, that begins kind of a, um, yeah, that begins a, a role of all kinds of activities uh, in David's life. So, uh, yeah, let me just end there. For to for this round, we'll we'll pick up with verse twelve of chapter eighteen uh, when we get together again. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Epic Narrative. If you have questions for Bob or would like to reach out for booking, please email us at thebobswitzer at gmail.com or visit thebobswitzer.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Epic Narrative podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. See you next week for another chapter in our story on the Epic Narrative.